Welcome to another inspirational message from London Life Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, obviously, I am on the right spot and the right place. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm glad that, uh, differently to the last time, now I can look into human eyes uh, rather than, than scream. Uh, I've been teaching more than a year just to the screen. Sometimes the students would be so graceful to put their faces in front of uh, their computers, but most of the time the screens were black, uh, just with their names. So I knew that they were in the class. So this human interaction is is very important. So thank you so much uh, for turning up in in person. Uh, Of course, Uh, I also appreciate our audience online, and uh, as I said, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I've been here many times, and uh, it's always uh, a nice experience to be part of your your fellowship. Uh, The the text that is uh, the source for this sermon uh, is found in Isaiah 36 and 37. Uh, It's one narrative, uh, which is quite rare in the book of uh, Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah is known for oracles, for prophetic speeches. Uh, And as you can see from the scripture reading, he he was an excellent poet. So the message is not uh, just true, but it is expressed in a very nice way. Uh, What were the circumstances, historical circumstances, uh, as a background to this to this event, uh, this event took place 701 BC, so at the end of 8th century BC. At that time, the Assyrian Empire was the superpower in ancient Near East, and 701 is very important uh, in the history of Judea. Uh, during the time, uh, during this time, Hezekiah's reign, uh, the king of Assyria, uh, Sennacherib, he came to these fortified cities of Judea. And one of them that is mentioned at the beginning of Isaiah 36 was the city of Lachish. The city of Lachish was one of the administrative centers and also military fort that were very, very important for the protection of the kingdom of Judea. Unfortunately, the city of Lachish was conquered by King Sennacherib. And if you visit the British Museum here in London, and if you go to the Assyrian section, in one of the rooms you're going to see a very long terracotta uh, made of clay. And on that terracotta you can see a very detailed description of the conquering of the city of Lachish. Uh, There you can see the strategy and tactics used by the Assyrians, how they conquered the city. Uh, You can see the war booty taken from the city. Uh, You can see some some objects that resemble the objects and vessels from the temple, which means that still in Lachish, people had worshipping gods, although King Hezekiah ordered everyone to worship God in Jerusalem. And 
what is very cruel and shocking, you can see also a representation what the Assyrians did to the prisoners of war. I can reassure you that no Geneva Convention was applied. The prisoners who were very, very lucky, they were killed by being beheaded. The rest of them, they were just skinned out or skinned down while they were still alive. So basically, that was the imperial colony, colonization propaganda. No one plays games with Assyria. We are serious. We can punish you. We can torture you. We can kill you. That was Assyria. Our focus today is actually on the speech of the Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh is actually a title, not personal name. The Rabshakeh, or Rabshakeh means chief cup bearer. Uh, literally, this high official in the imperial administration was not the person who would pass the, uh, the, the, the cup to the king, but it was probably, he was one of the highest representatives of this administration. Uh, we, will going to, we are going to look at his speech in details, and you can see how skillful in diplomatic speeches he is. He is multilingual. Uh, he speaks more than one language. Uh, besides Akkadian, probably he was an Assyrian. He spoke Akkadian. But with the Jews, he spoke in Hebrew. Although they told him, do not shout in Hebrew because the guards of Jerusalem can understand you. Speak to us in Aramaic. The third language, which was at that time in ancient Near East, the language of diplomacy and international trade. So he was very well uh, educated man and he was very skillful. He's actually a messenger of King Sennacherib. King Sennacherib was still busy with conquering Lakish and establishing order over there and the Rabshakeh is visiting Jerusalem. Uh, he's talking firstly to the officials of King Hezekiah. And they're just outside of Jerusalem, next to one of the tanks that provided water for the city of Jerusalem. And the Rabshakeh, he started his speech. Actually, his speech reveals the content of the temptation Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem faced. So when we talk today about the anatomy of a temptation, we are talking about this speech. And if you follow this speech, you can see that in itself, it is a masterpiece of rhetoric. So it's not just a nice chain of words, but rhetoric in terms to convince his listeners that whatever he's talking about, they should follow. Also, this speech is in the form of a diplomatic dispute and contains threats, taunts, mocking, and accusations. So, the Rabshakeh is aware of his position 
as a representative of Assyria, he is aware that King Hezekiah and Jerusalem are in this hopeless situation, and the Rabshakeh is using this situation to the maximum. The intention of the speech is to cause fear, discord among the defenders of Jerusalem and the king, and eventually to convince them to accept the rule of the Assyrian king. So this gentleman didn't come to Jerusalem just to, uh, just to spend some time in his life. He came there to convince them to give up defending Jerusalem and to accept the rule of Assyria. I would like to remind you that 21 years ago from this event, another king came to the northern kingdom, to the kingdom of Israel, and actually he conquered the, king of, the kingdom of Israel, all 10 tribes. And since 722, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, has been in non-existence. And all the inhabitants of this kingdom were mixed with the other inhabitants of the kingdom of Assyria. So basically, if King Sennacherib conquered Jerusalem, Judea would follow the destiny of the northern kingdom. So let us, let us go into details of the Rabshakeh's speech. In verse 4, he starts his speech with, this, with these words. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. This phrase, thus says king of Assyria, is called messenger formula. You can also find the same formula when the prophets pass the message of the Lord to the people. Thus says the Lord. And then the oracle, the content of the oracle follows. So, to certain extent, we can conclude that the Rabshakeh is considering the king of Assyria as a divine voice. Voice of authority. Somebody whose voice should be listened to and obeyed. Then in verses 5 and 6, the Rabshakeh refers to Egypt. And basically he says that Egypt as a political and military ally to Judea is useless. He says, there is no help to you. There is no one among people who can help you. You are on your own. Egypt, they're useless. Very often the Egyptians used either Israel or Judea in their cold wars, either with Assyria or later with the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Probably from 11th or 10th century BC onwards, Egypt was not the greatest military and political player in ancient Near East. Usually after that, that was Assyria, then it was Neo-Babylonian Empire, then Persia. But Egypt lost their, uh, lost their role of main military 
player or political player. So because of their weakness, Egypt very often used other nations, other countries to confront either Neo-Babylonians, Assyrians or Persians uh, rather than they themselves. And in verse 7, the Rabshakeh is putting his game on a higher level. He says that also God of Israel will not help the kingdom of Judea. Why? Because King Hezekiah ordered a centralization of worship in Judea, which means that he ordered every single altar outside of Jerusalem temple to be, to be destroyed in order to tell people you should all come to worship in Jerusalem. And the Rabshakeh knew that. And he says, God is angry with you. God is not going to help you because you did something wrong towards him. Then the Rabshakeh says, look at yourselves. If we give you 2,000 chariots, are you going to find people who would ride them and fight us? Where are the military captains, leaders? No one is there. So basically the Rabshakeh is saying, even if you look at yourself, you're nobody. You're not capable to confront us. You're incapable in a military way. And finally, the Rabshakeh says, the Lord, God of Israel, in verse 10 he says that, told Sennacherib to destroy the land of Judah. So, you can see how progressively Rabshakeh with his argumentation, tries to convince people of Jerusalem, the king Hezekiah, that their situation is hopeless. Egypt is not going to help you. You are not capable to defend yourself. God is not going to help you because you angered him. And finally, that same God you serve, he says, that God told king of Assyria, Sennacherib, to invade your country and to destroy it. So when you listen to this speech, it's very logical. It's very convincing. And especially if you've heard what happened to the city of Lachish, there is no doubt that they thought seriously about that. So the reaction of the Judean officials was, stop speaking in Hebrew. Because we understand Aramaic. Speak to us in Aramaic. People will hear you. Of course, the Rabshakeh deliberately continues in Hebrew in order to demoralize the people of Judah. In order to demoralize people who are on the walls defending Jerusalem. Then in verses 12 to 13 of chapter 36, the Rabshakeh is talking about the problems and difficulties for the Jerusalem defenders. And he continues in verses 14 and 17 with a very convincing argument. And it is very important from the aspects of temptation. Actually, he says that the Assyrian king promises new lands 
fruitful land for the people of Judah in exchange for their loyalty to him. So if they give up Hezekiah, if they give up God, he would give them new lands, which is very fruitful. <coughs> when you go back to the Pentateuch, and whenever you read about the covenant between God and Abraham, between God and Jacob, between God and Moses, God and people of Israel, always as part of that covenant, there is an element of what? I'm going to give you a land. So basically, the rapture came in the name of the Assyrian king. He's offering them a new covenant. But the price is, forget who you are. Forget which God you serve to. That's the heart of the temptation by, uh, presented by the rapture camp. Also in verses 18 to 20 in chapter 36, the rapture king is talking about the portfolio of the Assyrian king. Because the Assyrian king conquered many lands. And in those lands, people worship different gods. And the rapture king is telling people of Judah, ask them, look at these events. The Assyrian king Conquered this land, that land, this nation, that nation. And they also worshipped their gods. But the Assyrian king conquered them all. In the ancient Near East thought and world, the idea of what is happening on the horizontal level was connected what was happening in the world of gods. And the idea was... If one nation is capable to conquer another nation, that meant that the gods of the conquering nation are stronger than the gods of the conquered nation. So basically, the rapture case is saying the king of Assyria is stronger than all these gods. It is very interesting that the rapture case is not talking about the Assyrian gods. But the final authority he is calling up is the king of Assyria. <coughs> so basically he says that the king of Assyria is the ultimate authority in the reality of people of Judea. And they should accept him. What is very interesting is also to understand how people in the ancient times thought about religion, politics, sociology, economy, and every single aspect of their lives. For them, everything was religion. In the Western Semitic languages, including Aramaic and Hebrew, the, language, the languages of the Old Testament, there is no separate and particular word for religion. Actually, the noun religion has Latin origins. It comes from the verb religare, which means to relate. But if you read in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the word religion is not there. And probably the best tricky questions for, for theology students is, okay, uh, could you please tell me what is the Hebrew or Aramaic word for religion? 
and they just start sweating and they feel guilty and ashamed. Oh, we don't know that basic question. But the trick is there is no, there is no word for religion in Hebrew and Aramaic, at least in the ancient times. Why? Because everything was a religion. A religion as a concept was not just part of the society, but religion was the whole concept of a reality. And everything else came under that umbrella. So if you talk about military, if you talk about sociology, if you talk about economy, if you talk about ethics, if you talk about agriculture, if you talk about science at that time, everything was related to religion. And that's been, that was the case until the time of Enlightenment. Since the time of Enlightenment, 17th, 18th century onwards, now we talk about a religious aspect of our lives, sociological aspects of our lives, emotional aspects and everything else. But until then, everything was religion. And everything that was looking at, including economy, including relationships in the family, in a tribe, among the nations or within a nation, everything was governed by religion. And this temptation by king of Assyria is temptation that is very holistic, with WH, which means everything goes into this package. And there were so many reasons for King Hezekiah and his compatriots to say yes to this offer, just to avoid the threats, just to avoid the destiny of Lachish. Once you see what the Assyrians were capable, were capable to do, to their prisoners of war, then you can understand what kind of cruelty that was and why other nations were afraid of them. The speech of the rupture case is logical. And under quotation marks <coughs> is a fair offer. On the other side, the temptation is very sophisticated. No political or military allies to rely for help. No capable military force. And also it seemed facing this Assyrian threat that God did not support King Hezekiah. And also the Assyrian king proved himself more powerful against many other gods in terms of conquering the lands of their worshippers. So from the aspect of humans, not knowing who God is, the rapture kept probably taught that the offer is fair or was fair. What was the offer of the Syrian king, actually? He required a total loyalty by offering a new covenant, the land of plenty. In essence, he required from the Judeans to reject the Lord and accept the Assyrian king as their new master because he offered a covenant and in exchange he asked for faithfulness and loyalty. And it is very interesting that the king of Assyria is presented here as a typical colonizer. He requires their lands. He required their bodies. He required their families, their children. He required their minds. 
He required everything. So he did not intend only to colonize their land, but he did intend to colonize their lives, their lifestyle, and most importantly, their relationship with God. Later, we'll see that the very gravity of the temptation is on their relationship with God. What was Hezekiah's reaction? In verse 21 of chapter 36, Hezekiah ordered his high officials, do not answer him. Do not go into discussion with him. So when the rapture completed his speech, they didn't say a word. Instead of that, King Hezekiah went to the temple. He turned down or turned around his clothes and he sent messengers to prophet Isaiah. And later he received the message from him where the prophet says in verses 5 to 7, 6 to 7, Say to your master, says prophet Isaiah, Thus says the Lord. So the Rapshake would say, Thus says my master, king of Assyria. But Isaiah the prophet would say, Thus says the Lord. And this is the only thing that Hezekiah is left to. Thus says the Lord. How he faced temptation? Thus says the Lord. Verse 6. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. I myself will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Historically, this happens. King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, suddenly left Judea, went back to Assyria, and after some time, he was killed by his own sons. So, God says, the king of Assyria is not actually going against you, Hezekiah. He is going against me. And that's why I'm going to deal with him. Which means that for God, this is personal. The Assyrian king attempted to steal the Judeans from God by taunting God and offering the Judeans an alternative religion. So the temptation given to the Judeans is not about them to become secular or non-religious, but they were offered a different type of religion where the Lord is not God anymore, but a human is God. So God would step in into this situation. Whenever the people of God remain faithful to him, even in the shadow of that threat, God will take care of the temptation and will deliver them. So for God, this was personal because 
the king of Assyria coming against the Judeans. For God is personal because the lands and the people belonged to him. And that's the idea that you can find in the Pentateuch. You are my cherished property, says God in the Pentateuch. You're something special for me. And I'm going to take care of you. Suddenly the king of uh, Assyria and his army had to deal with other nations and with other military issues. But the Rabshakeh sends messengers to King Hezekiah and said, do not think that this is over. Maybe we are busy at some other place at the moment, but this is not over. And he goes straight forward. Do not trust your God. Your God is deceiving you. So the temptation now is put on a higher level. It's not anymore about Egypt. It's not anymore about your military capabilities. Now it's about your relationship with God. And the rupture care through his messengers would say, God will deceive you. So it's not anymore about discord and disunity between the people of Judea. Now it's about discord and to break, to stop the relationship between humans and God. And also he repeats through the messengers that the king of Assyria was more powerful than any other gods. And he says, this nation, that nation. So the main goal of the temptation was stop relying on God. Give up on him. Stop praying. Stop calling for his help. Stop being loyal to him. This stop, stop, stop is a recipe for failure. Stop, stop, stop is a recipe for breaking relationship with God. This is a direction or directions to the road of disappearance, to the road of death. Once the people of God give up on God, they already failed. The rest would be only a consequence of that decision. And the source of the temptation knows that very well. Once we give up on God, once unilaterally we break our relationship with him, we are already on the road of failing. On the other hand, when the people of God rely on God and remain faithful, God responds with protection and deliverance. Now let us focus on some texts in Isaiah 37, 21 to 32, our scripture reading. Actually, through the prophet, God says, the Assyrian king did not offend you, but he offended me. Not you people, not you king, but he offended me. That's why I'm going to deal myself with Sennacherib. Sennacherib relies on military strength when he mocks and taunts God. 
But God is much more powerful than that force. He says, that's nothing for me. And finally, he says, I'm going to subdue. And the picture is of an oxen. I'm going to put some iron things in his nose. And I'm going to turn him away and return him to the land of Assyria. Why? Because of his arrogance. Not just because he's your enemy, but because he's arrogant. And it is very interesting that that picture of an oxen for a king who was very arrogant is not mentioned in the Bible only here. If you go to the book of Daniel, chapter 4, another arrogant king looked like an ox when he said, O oh, wonderful Babylon, who I built it up for my glory and for my praise. And God says, humans who would like to be like God, who are arrogant to require from other people to worship them as God. I'm going to put them one level below. And that's the level of an animal. Historically, we know that King Sennacherib never ever conquered Jerusalem. We also know that the people of Jerusalem and King Hezekiah were not powerful military in a military sense and they did not use their own force to conquer Sennacherib. He just turned back and he left for Assyria. And this is the reason why. Because there was somebody above him who returned him to his own land. Let me wrap up. Let me conclude. The temptations always surprise us. Because as the time passes by, the temptations are more sophisticated and they always are directed to our greatest weaknesses. Or they are directed against something that we have not experienced before. So once you overcome a temptation, you can expect that the next one is more sophisticated, more complicated. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, it refers our weaknesses. What is our solution? Whatever comes at us, regardless how heavy the temptation is, regardless how complex or sophisticated it is, we are not the solution. Other people are not the solution in the first place. God is the solution. Whatever comes at us, let us rely on God through prayer and holding on his promises. And remember the source of the temptation, the devil. He's got only one thing on his mind, and that is give up praying. Give up your relationship with God. Give up anything that relates you to God. But we should know better because God is faithful and he will help us 
to prevail. Whatever is, uh, temptation comes to us, whatever is the problem now in your life, do not stop praying. Resist the temptation to give up on God. Because God is the only person who can help us in temptation. So may God bless us not to look at ourselves, not to look at other people, not to listen to the arguments of the tempter, but to listen to God's promises, to remember his blessings in our life from the past, to remember what was the last time when we saw lights on our life path, to remember when was the last time when God gloriously fulfilled our prayers. And that's the starting point when you fight in the good battle of faith. Because the, because the good battle of faith is not a fight against temptation, but it's a fight to remain with God. Let us remain with God. Amen. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you've been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit LondonLiveChurch.com.